Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to... Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. On today's show, I speak with Chrissy Clark about how one consumer crusader, that's Ruth Desmond, used a peanut butter controversy to change our food regulation system. A lot of what the FDA does now and what it was doing back in the time of these peanut butter wars was trying to figure out how many peanuts should there be in peanut butter and should it be 100% peanuts or if not, then where should the line be drawn? And, And that quickly becomes an existential question, even if you think it's a really simple question at the beginning. But before we dive into peanut butter, I check in with reporter Shana Sheely, who visited the bus station in Tel Aviv to get great Filipino food. Shana, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, Let's start in Tel Aviv on a Saturday afternoon, the Sabbath. There's a very large bus station, two and a half million square feet there. Let's start the story there. 
Okay, so um, Saturdays in Tel Aviv are pretty slow days. Most people, including foreign workers, have a day off. It's a day of rest. Public transportation shuts down. A lot of the shops are closed. People go to the beach. And the bus station is pretty much shut down, except for the fourth floor, which transforms into sort of a little manila There's a food market, and it comes alive with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Filipino workers. I stepped in line and started talking to some of the women there. Ah, on Saturdays, uh, many Filipinos are coming here, you know, they are meeting their friends. Some, they are eating some Filipino delicacies that they are selling here. So women Filipina caregivers who have their day off, basically they get off work, they go home, and they'll either start cooking Friday night or early Saturday morning. And they show up at the bus station around noon. They'll bring these, like, huge plastic Tupperwares filled with warm noodles and stir-fries, vegetable dishes, little plastic containers full of desserts, um, and they set up these tables in the hallway of the bus station. There's also produce markets. So they sell produce that normally you don't get in Israel. So cassava root, lemongrass, different bitter gourds that you don't normally see in an Israeli grocery store um, will all be like stacked up in the bus station. And they come not only to eat and to have these familiar foods, but they also come to hang out with friends and see relatives and people who they knew from the Philippines to see how their work is going and to chat about work and life in Israel and life away from their families in the Philippines. It's good. It's like for us fellow Filipinos, it's happy for like happiness for us. Shabbat to give us relief, you know, from one week job to take care of all people. So, Shana, how did you come across this story in the first place? How did you find the fourth floor of the bus station? So I was reporting based in Jerusalem, and I spent a lot of time going back and forth from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And on Saturday nights, I would notice that the bus station just sort of had a different vibe. And so when I realized that there was this Filipino market there, I started spending more and more time there. And what's so amazing to me is that these women, they live in a foreign country and they have a place that they can come together and taste something that's familiar. They, a lot of them haven't been home in years and years. They're separated from their families. They're separated from their kids. And all week long, they have to eat Israeli food, which is so different from the food that they grow up with. And this is the one day that they can come and feel home and speak in their own language and eat the food that they grew up with. Everything. All, most of the Filipino food I love. What have you eaten today? I eat pancit and adobo. And what, do you, what will you eat for dessert? This, buchi. It's buchi. It's inside it's mongo. It's uh, beans, green beans, and this is glutinous. Now, why Filipinos? Is there something particular about the Filipinos working in Israel for a particular reason? So Filipinos work as caregivers all over the Middle East and really all over the world, but specifically in the Middle East. Overseas foreign workers which are called OFWs in the Philippines, they make up about 10% of the Filipino population. And so that's, that's pretty big. So in the late 80s, Israel made a policy to import migrant workers from developing countries, and they came by the hundreds of thousands. A lot of these women haven't been back home in years. I have two kids already. 
My younger one, he's only one year old when I came here. It's not easy. But for money, to support the family, the whole family. So is this something at the bus station that just started or it's been going on for 10 years or what? It's been going on for years and it's become sort of this main area where Filipinos come to congregate. I spoke with two women Janet and Bailey, and they told me that the reason they come to eat this food here in the bus station is because they live with their employers, and their employers keep kosher, so they can't cook pork in their employers' homes, and a lot of Filipino food is pork. Here's Bailey. They cannot eat there in their employer because the, the employer doesn't want the smell, and also it's forbidden, so that's why they are coming here all the time. Then there's Yona Lean. She works in Kfarsaba, which is about an hour north of Tel Aviv. She is 38 years old. She's been in Israel for 10 years. She came to Israel to work as a caregiver or a mitapelet. She, when I spoke to her, she was eating mami, which is, it was described to me as sort of, actually, it was described to me in Hebrew as marak orez, which means like soup with rice. It's sort of like a chicken soup. It's like comfort soup. And she said when she comes to the fourth floor of the bus station, she feels like she's um, at home in the Philippines. Because we, we grew up uh, from this, we, we know the taste. It's every time I miss home. <laughs> so this is a, a bus station that has been transformed into a community center at the very least. Uh, and maybe something even more than that. So... So what's the bigger meaning here? It's not just food. It's not just companionship. It's about a culture within a culture, right? Yeah, and I think you find this in America. You find this all over the world where people are living in a place that's really far away from home, really far away from familiar comforts, really far away from family. To me, it's really incredible the way that people come together and build that for themselves. And I think that's what's happened inside the bus station. Shana, thank you so much. Uh, Great story. Uh, It makes me want to go to the fourth floor of the bus station in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was reporter and producer Shana Sheely. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Please subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded automatically right to your phone. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, as well as author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brad Inman. Hi, Brad. How can we help you today? Yeah, I had a question regarding ingredients that are called to be grated in recipes. A lot of times it calls for things like onions or ginger, and it releases a lot of juices. And I didn't know whether to include those juices or not, because I kind of assume that's where all the flavor is. But at a lot of times, those are also called for quick cooking methods. So it didn't really make sense. Yeah, you mean if you're trying to brown it, what's all that liquid doing in there? Right, exactly. What kind of recipes are you making? What nationality? Um, So a couple are Italian, but a lot of times it's with ginger. A lot of moisture comes out and stuff like stir fries, that sort of thing. Well, first of all, ginger and also grated zest, by the way, because you get the essential oils. 
you definitely don't right. want to throw that out. And uh, there's a little gadget called a Kitchen IQ Ginger Grater, which I love. It's a little plastic thing. It costs 15 or 20 bucks. Uh, and it grates ginger very quickly. What, is, what does it look like, Chris? It's green plastic. It's like an oval shape. It looks maybe five or six inches wide. And it has a little drawer that pulls out. Oh, really? And so you capture all the juice and the grated ginger. And that's really oh, okay. a great What's it technique. called again? It's called Kitchen IQ Ginger Grater. Okay. And that works great. Onions, I think when you dice or chop onions, there's so little liquid being given off versus the volume of onions. I don't think that's as big well, a deal. Well, he's talking about some recipes say to grate it. Oh, if you grate it, sure. You can grate right over the bowl or right over the pan or wherever it's going. I would use it. Include, the- include that liquid? As long as you're not going to be watering down whatever you're doing, like a dressing. But if you're heating it and cooking a skillet, yes, it'll be fine. Absolutely. Okay. I'm not sure that – well, that's true. No, onion juice would have a lot of flavor. We've actually used that for a cure for salmon and fish sometimes, onion juice. I could see it in a marinade. Yeah, I would think it would be fine. But there's pastes in a lot of cuisines where you make a paste that's a wet paste and then you go ahead and saute it yeah, anyway. I save it. Yeah. And, so- and by the way, as I said, with uh, orange or lemon or lime zest, don't do that over the cutting board. Because the essential oils end up on the cutting board, and that's where a lot of the flavor is. So make sure you okay. zest right over the bowl. Wherever your ingredients okay. are going to go, use a microplane test or whatever. Do that right over the bowl, and you won't lose those essential oils. Okay, awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, usually I use a microplane yeah. for ginger, and that just kind of makes a pulpy... No, no, that doesn't work, no. So I'll definitely have to look into that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the better way to do it. Okay. Great. There you go. Thank you for calling. All right. Thanks, Brad. All right. Thank you yeah. so much. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Allie calling from Fairport, New York. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling with a question about custard and custard pies, mm-hmm. specifically chest pie. Yeah. And then getting the pie to set and give that perfect silky texture. I've had two runs with a trying out a recipe. I haven't quite gotten the temperature, I don't think, right and the timing right. I've had it sort of seize up and turn into one solid mass. Well, I only have about 50 questions. So, yeah, I know, I mean, really. You pick, like, the most difficult thing. It's baking plus sugar plus eggs plus dairy. So what are we talking about, just a basic custard pie or a particular kind? This is a cranberry chest pie with orange zest in it. There's two cups of chopped cranberries in the pie. Wow. Um, and then we've got eggs and buttermilk and butter. It just hasn't set properly? I would say about three-quarters of the top of the pie was solid, and then you had that really luxurious, silky custard at the bottom for like a quarter inch. The second time I made it, it was like from one minute to the next, it went from jiggly to completely set and overcooked. Let me ask a question. Did you take the pie out when the center was still jiggling? No. The instruction says the pie is done when the top is slightly puffed and it has turned a light golden brown. No, what you need to do with any custard pie, I think, might help is the center couple inches or so. It should still jiggle because there's a lot of retained heat and carryover cooking once it comes out of the oven. If you want the perfect temperature when cooled, the center has to be undercooked and it will finish cooking outside of the oven. If you wait till a custard pie is totally set... This often happens with... um, Cheesecake, I was going to say. Cheesecake, it happens. It happens with pecan pie, other things. You really have to underbake the center. It should jiggle. Okay. And then just jiggle the sides with holding onto an oven mitt. And then over the next 15 or 20 minutes, it'll set up properly. That will help. 
The other thing you have okay. to check is, of course, your oven temperature. But, you know, you waited till it was fully set, which means it'll be overcooked by the time it comes out. Sarah? Uh, no, I agree. I agree. I think, uh, Chris, you're probably right. Quick question. How many eggs and how much buttermilk and how much sugar? Three large eggs right. and one cup of buttermilk. I did decrease the sugar a little bit. I took the original ah. recipe called for a cup and a quarter, and I used, you know, a little bit less than a cup. And I thought the flavor was great. But I'm also wondering how much does sugar yeah. play into this is how, the texture factor. Here's what happens on a call-in show like this. Everything's fine. To about five minutes into the call, <laughs> and, and then, then someone says, "What really oh, happened?" Well, I cooked it over my barbecue Who grill really in the backyard the, you know, instead this. of in an oven. Well, you're right. Sugar is hygroscopic; it attracts moisture. It has a huge mm-hmm. effect on something like a custard pie because of the chemistry. Mm-hmm. So, go back and use the original amount, and take it out when it jiggles in the center. If that works, then you know you've solved that problem. Now the question is how much sugar you can take out, and especially with the cranberries. I would think that could be a problem. You might have to add an extra egg. That's very delicate chemistry. All right. Well, I will certainly try that. So thank you both so much for your insight, and yeah. uh, we'll see what happens. My okay, pleasure. Ellie. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a call. That number is 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Ryan. I live in Logan, Ohio. Hi, Ryan. What is your question today? Well, my question is about... Masa and nixtamalization. We grew some of our own field corn last year. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So we were trying to make masa at home, and we did not have, I guess it's pickling lime. So we were trying to use wood ashes, and we weren't really able to find a lot of good information. So I was wondering if you guys had any answers. I go to Amazon and get the right stuff and get it to your door tomorrow. That's what I would do. I've heard about wood ash being used. The question is, what kind of wood? Is I mean, what do they do with it? I, yeah, I would go get the right stuff. But by the way, I do have a question. Yeah. I assume it's a very specific type of corn you're growing for this, right? It's a field corn. It's, but there's um, lots of kinds of field corn. I mean, is this a... Right. That was another thing that came up. We grew an Italian variety can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I did notice the kernels look a little bit more like popcorn, but it's marketed as a flint corn, like something you would use right. for polenta or we've made cornbread with it and things like that. So that was another thought that I wondered if that um, would make it more difficult to make masa with it. The kernels were a little bit smaller and pointier, kind of how popcorn is. You know, you can buy masa <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean you, you, let, let me just understand this. You're doing this because it's, and I perfectly agree with you, this is just a cool thing to want to try to do, right? Right. Yeah. I think it was an episode of yours that they were talking about corn tortillas and how the flavor was better if you made it at home fresh compared to like using masa harina, like the stuff you get at the store that's dried. No, I, I don't think we were saying growing your own field corn. 
boil it with <laughs> no. a lye mixture, pour it off, get rid of the husks, boil it for four hours. I think we just meant that if you made your own mixture at home instead of buying them pre-made. Here's the thought. There's some wonderful artisanal uh, companies that make yes. grits and ground corn. It's not Anson Mills, is it? It's Anson Mills. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if you called up Anson Mills and asked them what is the proportion that they wouldn't tell you. And then call, good. call one of the companies and just order the masa. And <laughs> no, then, I think this is no, wonderful they're doing I think it's something it. you want to do once. That would be my best suggestion. Even though both of us were hippies back in the day. We, had, we weren't grinding our own <laughs> corn we back were. then. Ryan, thank you so much. Yeah. Great question. I'll give Anthony Mills a call. Yeah. Okay. I hope you find the answer. Take thank care. you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Chrissy Clark. I'll be chatting with her about the secret history of peanut butter after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. At the center of modern federal food regulations is one of America's favorite foods, peanut butter. In the 1950s, many companies were doctoring their recipes with untested additives. Ruth Desmond, a Washington-area homemaker, decided to fight back, and she changed the way food is regulated here in America. Reporter Chrissy Clark produced a three-part series on the peanut butter wars for Marketplace, and she's here today to tell us the story of the peanut butter grandma. Chrissy, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. So this all starts in the late 50s. People are manufacturing peanut butter that's not all peanuts, right? Yeah, often in significant amounts, not peanuts. Uh, At one point in the 1950s, right after GIF came out, these rumors started popping up that uh, there were, in certain batches of GIF at least, only 75% peanuts, and then other suspicious ingredients making up the difference. So is it the percentage that's a problem or the quote-unquote suspicious ingredients? What, what if the rest <laughs> of the ingredients were perfectly healthy, wonderful things? Does it really matter? Well, I think that is a big question that a lot of folks were debating at the time. The, the ingredient in question that I think raised a lot of alarm bells was uh, 
Crisco. There was actually in the the factory formula um, at the Jif plant, it was up to 20% Crisco in peanut butter. Mm. And for some consumers, this was a shock. Um, and some folks described it as it, it was a, a tantamount to having peanut-flavored cold cream. <laughs> yeah, that, that really doesn't... Hydrogenate a vegetable oil doesn't sound like a great concept. So the consumer reaction was fairly substantial. Could you just tell us about it? And, and how did it happen? Why did it happen? And, and how upset were people? Yeah, well, it all kind of comes down to this um, one woman named Ruth Desmond who had started an organization a few years earlier in the 50s called the Federation of Homemakers. Here is Ruth Desmond's daughter, Janet Swagger. She said, that's terrible. They want to make money, industry, by putting less and less peanuts in the peanut butter and... uh, it's children that are eating these peanut butter sandwiches mostly, and here it's just peanut-flavored cold cream. Ruth Desmond was a homemaker herself, a very spirited, very determined woman. And so she got really interested in this issue. She started reading up on a lot of the science just about food in general and food additives in general when her husband got sick with bladder cancer, and she was trying to figure out what had happened and wanted to be feeding him healthy food. This was a time in American history where food was really transforming. It was after World War II, and the two biggest industries coming out of World War II were the food industry and the chemical industry, and they joined forces. And so there was a lot of stuff that was showing up in our foods that either people weren't aware that it was in there, or if they did know, they didn't know what it meant. Uh, And so one day when she was prowling the halls of the FDA, she ran across this notice that mentioned that they were proposing a standardized definition for peanut butter. And uh, when she discovered that what had prompted this was that some peanut butter companies, big peanut butter companies, had put a lot of this hydrogenated vegetable oil into the jars of peanut butter that she was buying, she was shocked. So she had a newsletter that she would circulate among homemakers, and a flood of consumer comments started coming in to the FDA. Hundreds, literally hundreds of letters. Here's Janet again. She said, I will tell everything. I will get all the facts, and I will blab it to everybody because everyone needs to be informed. So she called herself an alerter. And that's what she got, and that's what was in her newsletter, you know, telling people all the hearings and what was going on and the bills in Congress. She put it in her newsletter and get the word out. So uh, one of the things you pointed out is that from the FDA's point of view, this was a labeling issue. In other words, if you're just honest about what's in it, it's okay. And Ruth, I think, had a different point of view. She didn't want stuff other than peanuts and peanut butter. So is the FDA still dealing with regulation in terms of truth and advertising and the label more so than what's actually in the bottle? Well, one of the big things that the FDA was tasked by Congress with doing was promoting honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers when it came to food. And so that covers a lot of things. But one of those is that labels should be truthful and and mislabeling something is a crime. And then there's also this idea of adulteration, like don't be putting things into food to to change its content or to make it 
seem like it is something that it's not. Those are kind of broad and open to interpretation, those terms. But a lot of what the FDA does now and what it was doing back in the time of these peanut butter wars was trying to figure out how to promote honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers when it came to these complicated and weedy questions of how many peanuts should there be in peanut butter and should it be 100% peanuts or if not, then where should the line be drawn? And, and that quickly becomes an existential question, even if you think it's a really simple question at the beginning. Well, it's a good point because you can't make much money selling commodity products, right? But you can you can make money if you have a patented branded product that has a secret formula like Coke or Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? I mean, that's the whole point of this is it adds value, makes it harder for people to compete against you. You can charge more money. Right. Well, and for Jif, a consumer might see putting a lot of uh, Crisco into peanut butter as an adulteration. But for Jif, this was um, this was an innovation and this was their competitive advantage because there was this age-old issue that peanut butter has, right, of it sticks to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> and it's really hard to stir if you have the old-fashioned kind. And for peanut butter sellers, they kind of saw this as this um, this roadblock that was keeping peanut butter from becoming as popular as it could be because it took it took effort to have to figure out how to keep it spreadable or it would go rancid quickly. So when hydrogenated oils and partially hydrogenated oils came on the scene, there was this sense that they could make a smoother, more spreadable product, and people seemed to really like that. Let's play a clip from the series here. Grown-ups never became peanut butter fans until 1933, when a new kind of peanut butter started to appear in grocery stores. So here's something interesting. You know, the Food Safety Act, 1906, uh, there was arsenic and hard candies, copper sulfate and pickles to turn them green, borax and lots of things. So that happened in the beginning of the 20th century. And now half a century later, we seem to be going through this whole thing again. Is that because of the advances in chemistry and science where now instead of just adding copper sulfate to make pickles green – people could do much more interesting things to create much more profitable products. Yeah, I was just reading about these looming fights at the FDA over the definitions of other foods like meat. <laughs> like, what actually is meat? <laughs> and uh, as we've been reading you know, those articles of, oh, you know, that now you can make meat-based, plant-based, be right, plant-based meat, more humane meat. I think there are there are some folks, meat producers, who are like, wait a minute, don't call that meat. Like you can you, you can make it, but that's not meat. Um, so yeah, we, you know this. We we think of this in some ways as these these new fights that are happening because of the innovation that's happening right now. But every moment in history, there's been some sort of innovation, and people have been grappling with this since the fifties and before. So this is a fight we're just going to continue to have because science muddies the definition between what is meat and what are eggs. And that was something nobody had to fight about 50 years ago right. since there was no choice. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So we keep coming up with new ways. And it's balancing sort of innovation with precaution. So in the peanut butter wars, Ruth Desmond and the Federation of Homemakers wanted the FDA to set a standard that peanut butter contains 95 percent peanuts. In the end, the standard was set at 90%. Right. Let's play a short clip from the end of your series where Ruth's call for caution regarding food additives resonates in a very real way. 
In the last few years, Skippy and Jif have phased out partially hydrogenated oil because, as Kevin Myers of Skippy explained to me, Partially hydrogenated oil has some level of trans fat. Trans fats are, are implicated in artery, potential artery clogging. Artery clogging that's linked to heart disease. So switching away from that partially hydrogenated Eliminating the trans fat possibility in the product was very important. I asked Kevin if he thinks, in retrospect, maybe the higher standard that Ruth Desmond and the FDA had originally called for, the 95% peanuts, would have been better, so that the amount of partially hydrogenated oil and trans fats would have been limited in peanut butter long ago. I think having a 2020 hindsight of what has happened over the years, that limiting those to at least a a lower level probably would have been a good approach to have at that point in time, yes. Of course, Ruth Desmond's point was, let's not wait for 2020 hindsight. Let's err on the side of precaution to begin with. So has the FDA's approach to this changed since then, you think, or they're doing this, this the same dance between the lobbyists and the FDA? I think the dance continues, and consumers have gotten a lot more vocal. I think Ruth Desmond, what was what was so cool about the peanut butter grandma is uh, that she was w- one of the first examples of really a, just sort of a, an everyday consumer. She wasn't a lawyer. She wasn't someone who was was trained to do this, but who started to pay attention and do her research and get really engaged in this process and wanted to carve out a, a space for the everyday consumer's voice. Here is Ruth Desmond's daughter, Janet, again. The others would sit quietly. They didn't talk. Mother did all the talking. But they would sit there and agree with everything and and look very elegant and grandmotherly. And when the industry lawyers said something particularly enraging to the homemakers, the ladies would give them a look. We used to call it the hairy eyeball (laughs) to them at, at, at proper intervals. Yes. And what happened to Ruth Desmond, the peanut butter grandma? Did she go on and uh, continue this life of consumer action? She went on to talk about different additives in baby food and uh, various hormones that were put in, in meats. She was a lifelong consumer advocate, and she died in her 80s, and I think she was fighting up until the end. Thank you so much. Uh, that's a... Well, it's not an unusual story, but it's a good reminder that uh, some things never change. Thank you so much. Of course. That was Chrissy Clark, senior wealth and poverty correspondent at Marketplace. Her series on the peanut butter wars was originally produced for The Uncertain Hour, a podcast she hosts for Marketplace. You know, there's nothing new about adulterated foods. From copper sulfate and pickles for bright green color to using borax as a preservative, food manufacturers have long adulterated foods to increase profits. But in today's era, there is a twist. Panera, for example, wants the FDA to define an egg as an egg, not as some processed version of egg. So finally, the food and restaurant industries see the profit motive in selling pure, natural foods. So it's a bit early to declare victory, but at least one restaurant chain is acting like a good egg. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? 
I'm great, Chris. Not too long ago, we had a couple on our radio show, Miru and Vidge. Uh, they have a restaurant in Vancouver called Vidge's. They've had it for many years. And we enjoyed the interview so much, we actually went there to cook with them. And one of the things we loved is their yellow split pea curry. So we brought the recipe back here, and uh, you did some work with it. So this is a great weeknight meal. It takes only about an hour. A lot of that is hands-off time, not a lot of prep to it. It has two components. We're going to simmer some yellow split peas in water with turmeric, salt, and cayenne. And then the other part is the base of the curry, which is the masala. And masala is just a bunch of spices, essentially. That's right. So in this case, we start with onions. Uh, Mira really stressed the importance of the onions here, and we cook them for about 15 minutes until they're golden brown. So that really adds a lot of sweetness to the dish. And we use a combination of fresh whole spices and ground spices here. So fresh cilantro stems and ginger, whole cumin, coriander, and yellow mustard seeds, and then turmeric and cayenne. And that just gets cooked together for about 30 seconds until you can kind of smell those spices. You know what I love about this is that here in America, vegetables and legumes are kind of bland. They weren't like the centerpiece. All you have to do is look to India, for example, and then you have the spices and all of a sudden this is as good as eating a steak. I mean, it has a tremendous amount of flavor. That's right. It's got a lot of flavor. It's a great vegetarian dish. We add a little bit of tomato at the end, uh, add those yellow split peas to the dish. Those are really thick and creamy. You serve it over rice with uh, cucumber pickles and yogurt. You can, um, as they do in Vigie's restaurant, they add a fried egg on the top to make it kind of a more complete meal. But really, this is so flavorful and filling that you you don't really need the egg. Fried egg is going to go on everything in about five years. So yellow split pea curry, it's a main course dish for Tuesday night. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton, after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, You'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jenny Lee Adrian in Franklin, Wisconsin. How are you? Hi, Jenny. Good. I'm, I'm great. Um, so my question is, uh, I keep all my nuts in the freezer. Good, good for so you. So they last longer. And my question is, is it okay to toast a bunch of nuts ahead of time and stick them back in the freezer and use them anytime I have a chocolate chip cookie recipe? Well, there's some debate about this in the kitchen at Milk Street. 
Some people say yes. I say no because Ooh. I. Oh, Sarah feels a controversy coming here. I don't know. Go well, I, I think when you toast nuts and then use them right away, they're very fragrant and aromatic. And yes, I, I would agree. bet that if you froze them for a month or six weeks and took them out, you just wouldn't have that same fragrance. Even I don't if think you brought them the back to room temperature? I think that just, you know, it's like degasses like coffee beans once they're roasted. I mean, mm. once you roast coffee beans, unless you... I just think it's not going to be as good. Well, you said there's controversy over at Milk Street. Have you guys done a taste test? No, we haven't done a taste test. All right. Well, then, I don't know. Some people say yes, but it only takes five minutes to toast them. And then also you need to cool them down. You don't want to add hot nuts to a cold batter. And you have to heat up a skillet. Uh, But I think that's, uh, by the way, I wanted to say, I think that's a brilliant idea to toast your nuts for your uh, chocolate chip cookies. I've never done that. What kind of nuts? So you use walnuts? Yeah, walnuts or pecans. Pecans. Pecans would be I less. make a lot of blondies. Ah. Oh, so. I like blondies. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Are your blondies chewy inside or cakey or brownie-like? I think they're a little more cakey. Yeah. I like them on the cakey side. Ah. I'm into the chewy, caramelized yeah, me too. center. But that's yeah. all right. I'm sure yours are delicious, Jenny. I think you'd be fine. Yes. If you want to optimize the experience, but if it's going in a chocolate chip cookie, I think it's just fine. Yeah, but I think that Milk Street needs to test that and let us know, Chris. We'll put that on the list, Sarah. Thank <laughs> you know, very really. much. No, that's an excellent question, and we yeah. will test that. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Brendan Heineken. Hi, Brendan. How can we help you today? Hi. Um, I got some green coffee beans from a friend of mine. And I just don't know what to do with them. I tried roasting them because that's what he said I, need, I needed to do with them. Yeah. He didn't really know what to do with them either. So I tried just swirling them around in a, in a pan for a while. And uh, they kind of started letting off these real papery skins yep. sort of thing. Yeah. And it seemed to go from green, like to a burn. green color, to burned. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what they do. Chris, you've done this? No, about 10 years ago, I went through this whole process because I love coffee. And uh, I bought a number of different roasters, sort of the, the popcorn popper where they, they're aerated and they, they go up in the air and swirl around. I did the uh, rotating drum roaster, the more expensive one. And here are the problems. First of all, a lot of smoke. So you have to do it underneath a hood of some kind. Oh, that Otherwise, wouldn't work in my the New York City apartment. Secondly, I found that every batch of beans had a different roasting time and temperature. And so it's very complicated to get it roast right because otherwise some of them burn and some of them are green. And, you know, it's this problem. And then at the end of the day, I discovered that when I made coffee, it wasn't any better than – actually, it was worse than – beans I could just buy <laughs> at the local oh, wow. you know, gourmet place. Oh, my God. So I think the problem is you need a professional, expensive roasting machine to get even roasting, and you have to get the timing just right to get the roasting, the flavor right. You know, And the good thing about green beans is they hold. You know, They can keep them in the freezer or something for a long time. I never had much luck. These things are expensive, and there's a huge amount of smoke given off. So I really wanted to make this work, but I just go down. You and gave buy. up finally. Well, yeah, I mean, and also the quality of the green beans you're buying, you know, you, that's a different issue too. So wow. I think buying roasted, not ground beans, and there's so many good suppliers out there right now. That's the easy way to go. Well, unless Brendan, are you the kind of guy who likes to get involved in long projects? I like to have fun with that kind of stuff. You know, I've only got a couple pounds of these green beans. I don't think it's worth the investment to go crazy. You know, like that's 
hoping to maybe do it just sort of like in a pan or something easy. No, I, th- I, I think you should spend three or four hundred dollars and get a roaster, <laughs> and then give up after well, about a week. Well, if you found man. a secondhand, you know, a popcorn popper, you know, at a thrift store, it might be worth it. Yeah, true. I do find now versus ten years ago, my local place, there's like ten different kinds of beans and. You can get really good beans and make great coffee. The other thing I find is I like lighter roast, light to medium roast. Getting the, mm-hmm. the roast just right with these things is also a little tricky. It's a little tricky. So anyway, uh, there you go. Thank you so much. Okay, Brendan. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. All righty. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Please give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Vimahan Casey. How can we help you today? Okay, so, um, you know, I love to be in the kitchen, love to cook. My one weakness, I think, is with desserts. The one problem that I have with desserts happens to deal with the frosting and the icing, the decoration, presentation, all of that. I try a lot of recipes at home for my own frosting and icing, but they never seem to work. For the icing, I try that powdered sugar with milk and vanilla thing. It always comes out runny, gloppy, goopy. And then I try the cream cheese one in the mixer. Also doesn't work. What happens to the cream cheese one? It never really becomes spreadable. Like I always, even though I keep it at room temperature, I always feel like it still clumps up and never has a great consistency, and the taste is always just not there. So how can I make really good frostings and icings at home? I agree with you that the powdered sugar icing is pretty awful. Yeah, I really mean, sometimes awful. you can add, like, orange juice to it or something, but I, I don't or an like, orange zest. I, I, they never turn out no. great. I don't like them. A chocolate frosting always works nicely because as the chocolate cools, it sets up. I like an Italian meringue or a Swiss meringue, which means you beat egg whites, uh, oh. and then you heat up sugar and get a sugar, hot sugar syrup, like at 239, 240. The temperature doesn't actually matter that much. And then you drizzle it on the egg whites as you're beating them in the mixer for about two, three minutes. And that gets you a nice, fluffy frosting that'll hold nicely so just for a, straight meringue. a day or so. And it's not that hard to do. But do you have another? No, I was just going to say the boiled frosting, which is sort of similar, involves egg whites, right. you know, which is sugar, water, egg whites, vanilla, and cream right. of tartar. But the thing about the Italian, so you add the sugar syrup to the egg whites. There's also the Swiss where you heat up the sugar in egg whites and right. cook it to about 160. Those are a little tricky. You want an easier recipe for frosting, I assume? I mean, that's where I would prefer to start. That yeah. way I can kind of build up my confidence yeah. and then start working with something a little bit more uh, advanced. I think the cream cheese frosting, though, that's going to give you a good texture and that's going to hold really well, too. And I wonder if maybe that's more a technique issue with me and not maybe really knowing how to work with my mixer. Do you have a hand mixer or a stand mixer? Uh, the stand mixer. And, and what happened? You said it was just the, the texture was too stiff? or It's like the cream cheese still stayed kind of clumpy. Oh. How long did you leave the cream cheese at room temperature before you made the frosting? Maybe an hour to an hour and a half. Well, the only thing I can suggest is take the cream cheese out, cut it into pieces, not let it sit oh, okay. in the thing, and let that sit at room temperature for an hour and a half. Okay. I think it just feels too, sounds to me like the cream cheese was still too cold because that's what would happen if it was too cold. It wouldn't get smooth and it wouldn't beat up properly. But I, I would say okay. that's your go-to frosting because that's easy. It'll hold. You know, these Swiss and, and Italian meringues don't hold the next day very well. 
Um, and they are tricky. And they are tricky. And, yeah. and the powdered sugar thing is just, I don't think is. No, just awful taste. It's pretty awful. Well, so we I agree I, with you on that. I, I, I would go back yeah. to the cream cheese frosting. Is there a, Sarah, is there a Gene Anderson book or some other book? Nick Malgeri would be a good one. M-A-L-G-I-E-R-I. Try that. I think the cream cheese frosting is the way to go at the right temperature. Right temperature, right. Thank, thank you. Thank you for calling. Yes. All right. Well, All right. thank you very much yeah. for, your, for your time. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to toast your spices in a skillet the Chinese way. In China, they toast spices with salt. This makes it harder for the spices to burn because the salt insulates the spices. And of course, the spices flavor the salt. So here's how it works. Combine the salt and use whole spices, by the way, from the recipe's ingredient list in a small skillet and toast over medium heat until aromatic and the spices are lightly browned. Process in a spice grinder, then proceed as directed in the recipe, accounting, of course, for the addition of the extra salt. Dr. Aaron Carroll is professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Are you going to brighten my day or darken my day? Uh, I, th- I think it'll be a combination. <laughs> so I thought we might talk about a, a, a pretty recent study that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association that, that is, is supposed to answer once and for all which was better for us or for losing weight, a low-fat versus low-carb diet. Uh, and the, to cut right to the chase, the answer is it just doesn't matter. Um, this was a huge study of over 600 people, all of whom were overweight or obese, who were randomized for a full year. And in nutrition studies, a full year is an eternity. But they were randomized for a full year either to be on a low-fat diet or a low-carbohydrate diet, with the idea being, let's just see once and for all which of these works better. And they had plenty of education. They had plenty of help. They stuck in these diets for a full year. There was lots of follow-up to see if they were sticking to it. At the end of the day, they did differ significantly in what nutrients they were eating. The low-carb group was definitely lower in carbs. The low-fat group was definitely lower in fats. And at the end of the day, the differences in the weight they lost was was really not different at all. I mean, it was they both lost weight overall, which is great, about five to six kilos, double that, you know, to, to see how many pounds it is. But it, it didn't make a difference. And given how much people argue about what is the best diet, it is good to know that, look, they, they both seem to work a little, but, but that there really isn't a difference and that we shouldn't get so hung up on that one of these nutrients is the bad thing for us. Has anyone done a study of not what type of diet, but whether the entire notion of a diet is really practical in the long run. I mean, do people, uh, you know, some of these TV shows, you know, they come back a year later and, you know, they've gained back a lot of the weight. Is a diet something people can actually effectively stay on for a reasonable, you know, like five or 10 years? Has anyone ever studied that? Well, they have, and the, well, I mean, I should, I, I was going to say they have right up until you said five or 10 years, oh. because five or 10 years, no, I mean, like, there's no, I mean, we just don't do those kinds of studies. Um, this study was interesting in that at least it tried to go a little bit further. So the first thing they did was that they advised everyone to eat less processed foods. They emphasized whole foods. They emphasized better diets in general. Um, and But they, they didn't tell anybody, restrict your calories. They just were interested in saying, can you shift? away from carbs or could you shift away from fats? But here's the interesting part. All of them, without being given the message, 
of let's, you know, let's reduce the number of calories you did. All of them reduced their calories by about five to 600 calories per day in intake. And that was just in the message of think about what you're eating, try to get away from processed foods, be a bit more mindful about it. So there's some confirming evidence that trying to get people to think perhaps about what they are eating, to, to try to be more mindful about what they're consuming, to, to maybe even get away from processed foods, tends to drive us to diets that also have fewer calories, and that might be the component that makes us lose weight. Isn't there some other element to this, though, which is that being in a study, when you have support, in other words, uh, or you're in a community where you're eating communally, um, isn't that support really the essential uh, ingredient in all of this for losing weight, not just being mindful? It's hard to be mindful on your own. So maybe, um, you know, I think that there was initial contact originally and then it sort of drifted off. And you, you could be correct that it is the part about being in the study that makes a difference. But I, I do think that you're, you've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's got to be slow, steady change. It's got to be, you know, what can you do? What will you stick to? And of course, I've, I've advocated for a long time. And the best diet is the one you can stick to, right. <laughs> not necessarily right. the one you read in a book. It's whatever you can sustain over the long term that's going to be the best for you. In the same way that when people ask me, what's the best exercise routine? I said, the one you will do <laughs> every day or five days a week for the rest of your life. Not, right. not that there's one for everyone. I, I also want to point, there was one more fascinating part of this study, because I'm, I'm sure some of the listeners might have this question on the tip of their tongue. One of the interesting things about this study was they actually even went so far and looked at people's genes. Because there's a lot of fads these days that say certain people, because of their genes, are predisposed to be better on a low-carb or a low-fat diet. And they have a few genes that they've already identified as this has something to do with insulin absorption or that this one has something to do with something else. That these people have the genes that predispose them to a low-fat diet or predispose them to a low-carb diet. And there's a lot of businesses that will now test your genes and try to pick the diet for you. Well, they actually ran those genetic studies and then looked at whether those people were more likely to lose weight on the low-fat or the low-carb diet, and it also made no difference at all. <laughs> of course. That even this idea that somehow our genes are involved and that we could identify what people will do better with low-carb or low-fat, that's not proving to be true either. And so all of this fancy science that we keep bringing into play to try to come up with some magic solution as to find an easy way for people to lose weight or pick the best diet for them, yet none of it appears to work. And that we probably still, once again, have to get back to simple basics of what are the changes you'll make that are simple in your life that you can sustain over the long term to try to get to a healthier weight. Unfortunately, all of this always comes down to self-control, right? Well, I mean, I, I find that personally over time, I think it's also how much are you willing to, to cook for yourself? Right. I'm, I'm often baffled by people that I see who are willing to put in an hour, hour and a half in the day, uh, you know, driving to the gym, changing their clothes, working out, all with the idea that this is somehow going to make them lose weight when all the studies in the world show that it's not exercise but, but nutrition that is with weight loss. But if I say, why don't you cook for yourself, I have no time. And if they would just spend half that time in the kitchen learning to make food for themselves, they probably could do a lot more towards getting to a, a healthy weight and a healthier diet than, than all of this effort in other areas. Man, I'm, that's great. Don't exercise, cook. Be healthy. <laughs> there you go. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. You can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. 
If you'd like to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, and order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.